From the studios of WORQ in Wisconsin, this is the Stand Up For The Truth podcast. Today's issues, overlooked headlines, and biblical observations, equipping the remnant around the globe. Got your sword handy? This is Stand Up For The Truth. Another fresh podcast. Crash Connell here. Mary Danielson's in the studio. Thursday, August 31st, last day of the month, 2023. Speaking of which, a little reminder on Monday, Labor Day, there will be no podcast, no repeats, no fresh podcast. It's Labor Day, so no podcast on Monday. Also want to remind you to uh, subscribe to Q90FM Radio, the YouTube channel. Folks are really liking the uh, video versions of this podcast. Good morning, Mary. Good morning. Happy Thursday, everyone. My guest today is author Kitty Foth-Regner. She actually grew up in Green Bay, and we're going to take a look at her testimony which I think is very unique in how she approached the claims of Jesus and his claims on her life. This is not just a testimony, but a reasoning, systematic search for the existence of God. And I believe it also has a lot of value for us as we seek to present truth to others in a powerful way. In other words, it's not only a testimony of, but a testimony to a God who can not only be found, but that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him, Hebrews 11.6. Also, First Peter 3.15 says that we are to be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks us for the reason that we have hope. And we do have hope, no matter what's going on in the world. My scripture verse today, my main verse is Psalm 145, 17-21. And it says, The Lord is righteous in all his ways, gracious in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. He will fulfill the desire of those who fear him. He also will hear their cry and save them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth shall speak the praise of the Lord, and all flesh shall bless his holy name forever and ever. Lord, we ask this morning that you fill us with your grace and the power that we need to navigate this life. Help us to be sensitive to your spirit for opportunities to share that hope that is within us. Help help us um, help others to see Jesus in us and to also desire your forgiveness and loving kindness. And we pray this morning for Kitty for good health, continued wisdom in all of her labors for you, that you'd be um, uh, uphold her, that you would uphold her in your strong hand and meet every need according to your riches. And we thank you for your grace in her life. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm delighted to have Kitty Foth-Regner with me this morning. I'm going to keep the introduction simple because we're going to hear her story of how God used a time of despair and searching in her life to reveal himself to her and how she systematically scrutinized scientific, historical, prophetic evidences to uh, objectively come to the conclusion that the God of the Bible is the author of truth and of true faith. Her book, Heaven Without Her, describes her days as a young woman searching for meaning in those counterculture years uh, in America and how God opened a window for her to seek him with all her heart, mind, and soul. And I think you're going to find her story quite fascinating. Kitty, welcome to Stand Up For The Truth. Why, thank you, Mary. Thank you for the great introduction, well, too. It's just great to hear your voice and uh, great to have you here. We're going to dive right in so we can do this justice today. 
I think we met, I don't remember the exact year, I think you were thinking maybe 2008, uh, because of that, yep, because of that book you wrote, which is essentially Christian apologetics. Tell our listener um, about that book. Let's just dive in with a general overview of that book. Okay, well, yes, it was 2008 when we met. Um, my, My book, Heaven Without Her, had just been released by Thomas Nelson, which is now part of HarperCollins some interesting things going on in the Christian publishing world. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, it's uh, one reviewer called it essentially an apologetics work wrapped in a memoir, which I thought was a really nice way of putting it. Uh, but it's the story of my intellectual and uh, spiritual journey from feminist atheism to born-again Christianity in the wake of my Christian mother's death. Um, and, in fact, it's the book that I wish I had on the worst night of my life. Wow, that's that's a heavy statement. How how so? Um, well, that was the night that my my dear eighty seven year old mother was lying in a coma in a nursing home, dying of cancer. I was forty seven years old at the time, and I was totally devastated. She and I had been very very close, although we were on different spiritual planes. But of course, I didn't know that at the time. Um, the last thing that I had said to her just hours before this evening that evening. Um, I whispered in her ear, I'll see you there, Mom, but I hadn't a clue what that meant. Mm. Mm. But that night, sitting there um, nursing beers so that I wouldn't get drunk, um, I decided that it was high time that I find out, found out what there meant. Wow. Um, but I had really no resources available, nowhere to turn to find truth about whether she might possibly exist somewhere out there once she grieved her last. Hmm. Wow, so that was a pivotal, pivotal moment in your life. What year would that have been? That that was um, 2000. Oh, okay, yeah. 2000, all right. Yeah, so, um, so then I, I, she died that night, and the next day I started my, my research. And my first step was uh, asking everyone that I knew who had any faith at all why they believed what they believed. In other words, how did they know that what they believed was true? Mm-hmm. Um, they were mainly Christians, but I also knew some Baha'is and some Buddhists and a Hindu and a Muslim or two, and I knew a whole bunch of New Agers. And so as over the subsequent weeks, I, I asked each of them, why do you believe what you believe and why, how do you know it's true? And they all responded in essentially the same way with a shrug and and I don't know. I just believe. Wow. Wow. Yeah. So did that, that just seem to kind of confirm my long held belief that faith is by definition blind. Wow. There's no reason to believe this stuff. So it really didn't help me too much. Yeah. Um, did that surprise you? Did that surprise you? Yeah. Well, no, because okay. I guess I had always thought that that faith was blind. Okay. <laughs> so so um. But it, it, that wasn't good enough for me. I had to know whether it was true or not. Mm-hmm. And but one of the interesting things, Mary, is that somehow I knew that this was all connected to a God of some sort. You know, the question of an afterlife. Is there a God? I, and in retrospect, that strikes me as so odd. How did I make that connection? Mm-hmm. That there had to be a God involved. Um, but anyway, that that's what occurred to me, and I had to know, so I spent the next 15 months investigating the question of God. Did he exist? And if so, which one was the real deal? 
Well, what I love about how you approach this was all the people that you so freely talked to about your your searching and your journey. And I'm sure that there were some very interesting responses to you. Uh, maybe some people just didn't want to talk about it or they did want to talk about it. But there's a part in your book here that says, um, you know, your friends, there was more than any of my friends wanted to know about, in other words, about your search. You're nuts, said one. You're boring, said another. What's wrong with you, said a third. <laughs> Isn't that kind of just yeah. a general overview of how people respond when we claim that we're searching? And I, I never asked I never talked to people about my search. It was very private for me, but you had no problem talking to various friends and getting their input. And I love how you were so uh, extroverted about it all. Um, did their responses surprise you? Did you think they would actually listen or be interested in your search? Well, yes, I thought they'd be interested. You know, I would, my friends were mainly pretty science-heavy people, too. Okay. And I thought they would be amazed by what I was discovering <laughs> and excited by, about it, too. But no, as, as you quoted from the book, they thought I was pretty boring. So <laughs> they didn't want to talk about it. Kitty, you're never boring. I know that's for sure. Let's go back a little bit in the beginning. Um, your mom was a believer. Were you raised in a, a general environment, church-going, Christian home? Oh, yes. It was a Green Bay in the 50s and 60s, okay. which um, is still, to this day, my idea of being really close to heaven on earth. It was mm-hmm. a wonderful town, mm-hmm. a wonderful era. Um, my, my parents were old-line congregationalists, and they dragged me to church and Sunday school every week. I shouldn't say they dragged me, because in those days, everybody went to church every week. Right. Nothing unusual about it. Right. But anyway, so I went um, until I went away to college, but... Mm-hmm. I apparently didn't pay much attention to anything because I don't remember much about um, those classes or or the services or anything except goofing around with my friends. (laughs) Yeah, right. But then two two things happened that really sent me into this vast wasteland of atheism for the next 30 years. Um, First of all, when I was 17, I had just been at, at college for three days, and my beloved father just dropped dead. And... Then secondly, um, in the subsequent months, college turned me into a feminist atheist with absolutely no use for religion. And that that ended up being my spiritual state for the next three decades. Wow. Wow. So So, you embraced the feminism of the day, and it was really coming to the fore um, Betty Friedan and, and, and um, right. I can't think of the other gal's name, but they, they really did go after my my mom's age group and my age group. I mean, we were through TV and all kinds of media. The, the conditioning, it was relentless at that time. So it's, it's not too surprising, right? Yeah, back in the 70s, it's not too surprising. But what, what did that look like? What, does, what did feminism translate into for you? How did that affect your day-to-day life? Right, and, and I think feminists today would probably say, oh, that's not true, but it, but it was. <laughs> um, my worldview went something like this. I want, I need, I have a right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> These were the only things that mattered. Um, and at least the way I practiced it, feminism was a way of preserving and promoting um, and even glorifying selfishness. Mm-hmm. Um, what was important to me through those 30 years was my work my success, my love life, my pets, my house, my moods, thoughts, desires, hopes and dreams. Yeah. You know, just It was so selfish. Um, and, and as I became, I was a freelance writer, and as I became more and more successful, 
in that field. Um, that meant that I became pretty well self-sufficient with, with all the fortune and friends that, that a girl could possibly want. And I had this great boyfriend and I had lots and lots of pets and, but you know, life was great. Who needed a God? Yeah. Yeah. So I didn't even really think about an afterlife much in those days. Um, I figured my dad just didn't exist anymore, and hmm. I was just going to eat, drink, and be merry yeah. and have a good life. Yeah, and youth youth is that way anyway. You figure you have all the time in the world, and you and I both know yeah. now at this point that's not true at all. But right. um, but also feminism, you know, as, as I'm reading the book, it's it's it kind of you're able to. It's almost like a wall that that us gals were able to put around us. You know, don't don't touch, don't ask. I'm not going to tell you anything. I don't need a commitment. Or I, I, it keeps you kind of safe. Don't, don't you think feminism kept women from looking at the reality of, of uh, growing up into the future and being responsible adults? Or no? I mean, I, to me, it all, it's a, a lot of it is about walls. That, that's a really good, good insight there. Um, yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. yeah. A lot of safety there in those walls. Yeah, absolutely. And we had, um, it seems like as baby boomers, we had the whole world stretched out in front of us. And so it was like a smorgasbord. Well, I'll take a little of this and I'll take a little of that and, and do your own thing and whatever. That really was true of how we grew up. Now, I, I didn't go to a university campus situation at all, but I know you did. And that's kind of insular too, right? Where you just in this little world for four years and studying and, and then you come out and, and wow, there's the real world. So. That's right, fascinating. Right. Yeah. Where Where did you go to college? Um, I spent the first two years at Ripon College okay. doing drugs and drinking. Oh, <laughs> yeah, I took a year off, and then I went to UWM okay. Um, okay. to study journalism and got very serious about it there. And, in fact, one important thing that happened there that would pay off later was I took an Econ 101 course because I had to, and I think I had the last conservative professor in existence, hmm. at least in the UW system. Hmm. Um, and I became a conservative. Oh, really? So, yeah, so that really, that made a difference. Um, but a a Christian friend of mine, when I did get saved eventually, she said, yeah, I always knew of all the people we know that you would be the one to get saved because you're conservative. (laughs) Hmm. And conservatives are interested in truth. Yeah. So I thought that was pretty, yeah, a, a good insight. And it's, turned out to be true over the years. Well, that's a really interesting insight, too, with the political culture and climate in this country anyway, today. Right, um, right. But, you, you know, you were an atheist and a feminist, um, mm-hmm. and like you said, you didn't really think about, you know, the end of your life at all, uh, but what were your ideas about an afterlife during that particular time frame? Was that another kind of a cafeteria concept for you? Um, yeah, pretty much. It, it was an afterlife was whatever I wanted it to be. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, like we all got to choose our own afterlives or something, yeah. um, which meant whatever sounded good to me that day. But often I was a big fan of Alice in Wonderland, and so often <laughs> I envisioned heaven as, some, as something like Wonderland with um, talking animals and, and kooky but really benign characters. Um, or then there was this Robin Williams movie, it came out somewhere, and there, it was called What Dreams May Come. Mm-hmm. It was this beautiful place, dripping with color and free of any sort of God. Yeah. Um, and so I thought it could be like that. Yeah. Um, but either way, it, it was open only to good people, not Hitler, not Stalin, 
um, and probably not those very judgmental Christians either. Yeah, probably not. Um, it was going to be a fun place. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, did anyone at this time, did anyone share the true gospel with you during this particular season? Uh, my mom tried to a lot, but mm-hmm. I never let her get much past the word God. Oh, man. <laughs> um, and my sister Carrie, who was an Episcopalian, also tried to share her faith with me, but she didn't get very far either because within a few minutes I always end, ended up in a, a house. Mm. About it. So, but that was about it. I don't remember anyone else talking to me about okay. it. All right. Well, I think they must have been Sunday school, but oh, no, I wasn't going to Sunday school anymore. So. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. Well, and now growing up in Green Bay, of course, um, the Packers. You were surrounded by it. Your your dad was one of the first shareholders. Uh, for people mm-hmm. who don't, for people who don't understand that, you know, the Packers is is a uh, owned by the fans, and there is shareholders involved. He was one of the first season ticket holders before Lambeau Field, you know, City Field, all that. So how how did the Packers influence you? This is a real interesting part of this story. Okay. Well, yeah, I grew up in Green Bay during the Lombardi era, but I didn't really get into football until the early 90s, um, and my boyfriend and I started going to the games and everything. We had family tickets. Um, in 1993, Reggie White joined the Packers. He was known as the Minister of Defense. Mm-hmm. Um, and as I said, by then I was very conservative politically, um, and his outspoken Christianity was so un-PC that I really admired him just for that. He really grew on me. I thought he was mistaken, of course, about this Christianity business, but still, I really admired him. And then on January 12, 1997, a day I will never forget, we were at the NFC Championship game, Packers versus Panthers. This was for going to the Super Bowl. Um, and all of a sudden, I believe it was in the second half, people have told me, on the Jumbotron, here comes Reggie White, um, apparently standing in street clothes, and he was singing a song that I'm, I don't know whether I'd ever heard before. I don't know how I could have avoided it, but it was Amazing Grace. Mm-hmm. And it was this transcendent moment. The 60-some thousand people who were in that stadium just disappeared, and it was Reggie White singing this song to me. Um, it, it was just the most amazing moment. Mm-hmm. But, of course the moment passed, Mm -hmm. and it was over, and I kind of forgot about it. Mm. Wow. Wow, that's that's something you can look back on and say that that the Holy Spirit was probably starting to work in your life, softening your heart a little bit maybe. Do you think that's maybe what was going on? Yeah. I think so, yeah. 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 I can't wait to meet Reggie White. Yeah. Someday. Yeah. I'm sure I wasn't the only one who was impacted by his testimony. Yeah, I'm sure you're right about that. And But now that wasn't the moment that you were converted. I mean, that was the kind of the starting point of something um, pretty amazing, but it you, you took your time. I, I'm just totally blown away at how you took your time. Um, and But your mom was still around at this point, right? Right. My mom was still alive, um, living in that nursing home. Okay. Um, but, but things started to change in my thinking and my heart inexplicably. For instance, um, on the subject of abortion, I had, was a feminist. I was definitely pro-choice. Nothing would, would shake that mm. opinion. But I found myself all of a sudden starting to read some of the conservative women columnists on this subject, like Phyllis Schlafly was one of them. Okay. There's one named Maggie Gallagher. I was a subscriber to a newspaper called The Conservative Chronicle. 
and I had always ignored those those essays before, but now I started to read them, and then one day I woke up and I was pro-life. It was like, oh, what happens here? And of course, I couldn't tell anybody that I had changed my opinion. It was my little secret. But um, and then on the subject of marriage, this was a couple years later. Um, my boyfriend and I had been living together for, oh, I think over fifteen years at that point. But suddenly, marriage seemed imperative. Like it was wrong to just live together. Um, and so we got married. We, he, he was fine with it, and we went to the courthouse and got married. <laughs> <laughs> which is pretty amazing. Um, I, I, my friends were asking, why in the world did you do this? They weren't offended by the marriage. They were, when they finally, when I started making pro-life noises, they were very offended by that. But they weren't offended by the marriage, but they just didn't understand it. Mm-hmm. And all I could say was that, um, hmm, well, I'm anti-Bill Clinton, <laughs> and the world is in two camps, amoral and moral, and... Mm-hmm. My new husband and I are going to be in the moral side of life, so we had to get married. That was it. That yeah. was the only explanation I could come up with. Yeah. Well, your conscience was starting to go into overdrive a little bit. That's very, very interesting. <laughs> and and so now this started. This started. Now you, like I said, you were very systematic. So question number one, because you were an atheist, okay? So um, you you would have asked yourself, you know, well, what was question number one? You tell me. Oh, question number one is: Is there a God? Mm-hmm. Definitely. And then question number two was, okay, if so, which one? Mm. So that's what I set out to, to figure out. Wow. That was... And this was after my mother had died. Okay. That was very insightful on your part because there's a capital G God and there's a small G God and there's only one of the one and a lot of the other, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And and how did I know that yeah. heaven thing idea had anything to do with a God? I don't know, but yeah. I... I did know it. Yeah. Um, so anyway, that first question, is there a God, turned out to be pretty easy to answer. Um, as I mentioned, I'd been a copywriter for 25 years, and I mainly specialized in scientific topics. I did a lot of work for companies oh. like GE Medical Systems. And, oh, okay. Um, and Johnson Controls and that sort of thing. Um, but anyway, so I took a scientific approach to the question of God. After all, science had shown us that there was no need for a God, right? That that this universe had simply created itself. But it was time for me to find out if that was true. Okay, so then so, there, there were some authors. There was a specific author that really uh, spoke to you about this. Now, I've never heard of this gentleman. His name was Patrick Glynn? Yeah, and it was a book called God the Evidence. And one of my atheist girlfriends had bought it, and she showed it to me, and she was going to read it. She absolutely, actually never did end up reading it, but um, but I went out and bought it, too. I thought we'd read it together. And this Patrick Lynn, um, in God the Evidence, he revealed something called the Anthropic Principle, which I had never heard of before. It's the fact that every variable in the universe is set precisely to support life on Earth. Mm. Um, if you change just one of these variables, like gravitational force, for instance, mm. just change it a smidge and it all falls apart. This, this world can't exist and support life. Um, the author said that this is a well-known secret among scientists who wonder about it behind closed doors, but not in public. Isn't that interesting? That is very, very interesting because they've got to uphold the thing that they've said they believe. Wow, that's right. that's amazing. Right. Yeah, it's like they know it's a lie, but wow. 
Anyway, it seemed obvious that this precision couldn't have come about through the chaos of a Big Bang, which, of course, is everybody's go-to explanation mm -hmm. for how the universe came in being. So, so I had this anthropic principle under my belt, and, and then books practically began falling into my lap, <laughs> um, primarily books about intelligent design, which um, is, is a movement which ostensibly proves that there was an intelligent designer, but they don't identify who that was. The truth is they're mainly Christians in this movement, but, mm -hmm. um, but they, they don't go that far with it. Um, but, and this literature made it clear that the origins debate, with, with the origins debate, there are just really two choices. Forget all these fancy words out there. There are only two choices. Special creation, which is a god, or time plus chance, which is evolution. Mm -hmm. um, I've been so indoctrinated in the theory of evolution my whole life, as we all were, right? Right. Um, but now I began reading these books and listening to lectures that blew up modern science's um, best efforts to prove the time plus chance scenario. Mm -hmm. um, and I found a number of books on that that were really good. One was Darwin on Trial, written by a, um, a lawyer, actually, named Philip Johnson. That's really excellent. Um, and the real big one was Darwin's Black Box by a microbiologist named Michael Behe. Absolutely blew me away. They were incredibly persuasive books. And I, so I soon enough came to the conclusion that only intelligent design explains this universe and everything in it. So there was an intelligent designer, a.k.a. God the Creator. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I was convinced. There is a God. Yeah. Wow. Well, it's a start, right? And I know that uh, you write at some point in the book that uh, evolution, that theory breaks all kinds of natural laws because you can't have something from nothing, um, according right. to the law of cause and effect. Life can only come from life. That's the law of biogenesis, nothing from non-life. Yeah. You know, so like you, know, like you say here, uh, evolutionary theory says it was non-life that jump-started life uh, some long ago, yeah. faraway chemical soup. I mean, it even sounds absurd just to even say it out loud here, but also that nothing improves over time. And I think that is yeah. huge, huge, because sin is the default setting in this world, and everything is decaying because of that, because of That's Genesis. Correct. Yes. Very interesting. Second law of dynamics, yeah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But I didn't know any of that stuff. That, yeah. I'd never come across any of that information before, so... It was all very eye-opening to me. Yeah, no kidding, because everybody was brainwashed in school about uh, evolution. Um, so we have about three minutes yet, two minutes yet, in this particular segment. Uh, so you finally uh, acknowledged a creator's existence, um, but then you had to figure out uh, which one was the real deal. And you mentioned a, uh, an author named James Sire. I've also not heard of him. So uh, what did he write? He wrote this book called The Universe Next Door, okay. um, in which he outlines the key doctrines of all the major religions in the world. Um, wow. And one of the key takeaways from that book was that almost all of these religions say that what matters in terms of eternity is being a good person. If you mm -hmm. want to get to nirvana or mm -hmm. paradise or whatever, just be a good person. Accept Christianity, because Christianity says what matters is Jesus and his finished work on the cross. Mm -hmm. So that kind of outlined my approach for me. Mm -hmm. There was Christianity and there was everything else. Mm. Boy, that's the truth. <laughs> right there. So, yeah. 
So, so um, you- of course, I started out looking at everything else because mm-hmm. I thought that other than my mother and Reggie White, Christians were pretty boring, and I didn't really <laughs> want to be one. <laughs> they never have any fun, right? Yep. Yep. So you wanted something a little more cool, and but you began seeking evidence uh, for the truth of everything else. And um, let's just start this. What sort of evidence did you find? And we're going to have to kind of cut it off soon. But what what kind of evidence did you find for everything but Christianity? It's a real simple answer, isn't it? Yeah, the answer is none. I found none. <laughs> I found things claims like because it's true because we have a holy book. Mm-hmm. Everybody has right, um, or it's because there are so many of us, but we all know that the majority can be sadly mistaken. Mm-hmm. Um, or, and they would say it's true because it works, meaning it delivers peace or prosperity sure. or wisdom or whatever it is that sure. they want. Um, but they all claim this, so that can't be true either. Yeah. And one other thing was that I, I realized, um, I think because of James Sire, that they could not all be true. Yeah, exactly. In fact, not even, not even two of these could be true. Yeah. So, yeah. If I could just find enough evidence of one for one of them. Yeah. Yeah. Kitty, hold that thought because we're going to come back shortly. Um, we got to uh, take a break here, but uh, I want to mention Calvary Chapel invites you to their 27th Great Lakes Prophecy Conference entitled Watch and Be Ready, September 8th through the 10th. Gain a greater understanding of the significance of these times with some of the best teachers today. Joining us is Bible teacher Chris Quintana, Curtis Bowers, producer of the Agenda series, Pastor Jeff Sowald, prophecy scholar Tommy Ice, author and speaker David Fiorazzo, and special music from Bruce Carroll. Cost is $35 per person. Register at ccappleton.org. Hope to see you there. We'll be right back. Your prayers and ongoing financial support keep our Truth at Any Cost mission strong. StandUpForTheTruth.com Welcome back to Stand Up For The Truth. My name is Mary Danielson. I'm speaking with Kitty Foth-Regner today, a Wisconsin author, and she wrote Heaven Without Her. And we're talking about her apologetics approach to seeking and finding the truth uh, in her life. And uh, Kitty, so we've talked about you know just the various ways of... Uh, how you got started looking into evolution and, and all the lies therein, but uh, at what point did you start looking into the Bible about what it said about God? When did that come into the picture? Well, I, I finally, I, actually, I make it sound a lot more straightforward and chronological than it was, but I, I started, um, I joined a church, I would have joined a mosque if there had been one around here, just in case, <laughs> I would have joined a Hindu temple, all of that sort of thing. They didn't exist around here then. Um, but so I did start reading the Bible too, um, and I, more important, I start reading, started reading articles and books about the Bible, focusing especially on its scientific statements. Not that it's a science book, of course, but it has a lot to say about the natural world. And I decided to see if it told the truth about these things. Hmm. So that was where the real surprising stuff came in. Hmm. I was just astounded by what I learned. It turns out that the Bible contains dozens, probably scores, of scientific facts that its writers could not possibly have known two or three thousand years ago when they were writing it, mm-hmm. um, not without some sort of divine revelation. For example, the fact that the ocean floors have springs and valleys and mountains. These things were revealed in the books of Job and Jonah, but they were not discovered by secular science until the 1800s. Um, or this is a good one, the fact that the, that circumcision was precisely prescribed in Leviticus for the eighth day of life. 
And it turns out that this is the day that the blood clotting reaches its peak in human life. What a coincidence Mm -hmm. that is. Mm -hmm. Um, Or it describes the water cycle, which was not discovered until much centuries later. Um, Or the fact that God hung the earth on nothing, which the book of Job tells us. Um, It's suspended in space. Mm -hmm. It's not sitting on the back of a turtle. Um, (laughs) Or the fact that the sun has its own orbit. That is in Psalm 19 by Mm -hmm. King David. But it wasn't discovered by secular science until 25 years ago. I mean, this is just incredible stuff. I, I went on to read the writings of creation scientists from Scott Hughes to Henry Morris and everyone in between, and I learned that even geology and the fossil record confirms the book of Genesis and not Darwin. The evidence is overwhelming. Um, and anybody who wants proof of that can visit, just visit answersingenesis.com mm-hmm. um, to confirm it, or the Institute for Creation Research. Amazing stuff. I bet you were really surprised by this. Did, didn't you think that, that Christians were all flat earthers? Oh, yeah. And the flat earther, that was the best one of all. Um <laughs> The fellow who normally gets the credit for saying that the Earth is round was the Greek mathematician Pythagoras, who said it about 500 B.C. But it turns out that the prophet Isaiah revealed in his Bible book that the Earth is round 200 years before Pythagoras. Um, I I actually investigated this, and I could find no earlier references to it um, than Isaiah's. And so on. It, it turns out that the Bible makes dozens of such revelations in passing, and they've all turned out to be true. Mm-hmm. The, the only explanation for that is that the writers were given the knowledge supernaturally yeah. from someone outside of time, which means God himself. Yes. Their words were God-breathed. Yeah. Well, and I read Psalm 19. When I read Psalm 19, okay. even, I, the rest of it, and it talks about... Um, uh, day unto day utters speech. Night unto night reveals knowledge. In other words, looking up at the sky, there's no speech yeah. or language where their voice is not heard. In other words, everybody understands creation. And it says their line has gone out through all the earths. We're talking about orbits here. Um, he has a tabernacle for the sun. I mean, Psalm 19 is full of, of meditated, you know, meditation friendly, um, verses that tell us more and more about the God who made the stars. He calls them all by name. Just incredible um, things. I, I think maybe I interrupted you. Was there something else you wanted to say about this particular line of reasoning? Oh, no, just okay. that um, it got me 90% of the way oh. there to believing that the Bible is absolute truth. Oh. But it was that wasn't enough. I wanted to be 100% mm-hmm. sure. Mm-hmm. Yes, and you should, right? Um, but what, right. what was the thing that, that tipped you towards that 100%? That was definitely fulfilled prophecy. Mm-hmm. Um, I had been a, a history minor in college, focusing on on um, especially modern European and German and Russian and American history. Um, and one of the things that really struck me as I was investigating the Bible was that we had never been taught anything about Israel. You know, the most oh. important thing in the 20th century. And it never was even mentioned in my history classes. Um, So the prophecies about Israel really got my attention. And I read and read and read a lot about this. Um, There were dozens of them. As the Bible foretold that the citizens of Israel would be scattered worldwide, and that happened in the first century A.D., 
um, thanks to the Roman Empire. The Bible also says that they would then return to the land, and that began happening in the 19th century. Um, and it says that the nation of Israel would then be reborn, complete with her original language and currency, and that happened in May of 1948. Um, whereupon, the surrounding nations attacked her brutally, just as the Bible said that they would, And but the nation of Israel would survive, would have strength many times its numbers, according to the book of Leviticus. Um, and I actually did the math on that, and it was 20 to 1, and that's just what the Bible says. Mm-hmm. So Israel's victory and her survival since then are nothing short of miraculous. Mm-hmm. So that got me 100% there. The Bible is true. Wow, that's really cool, because prophecy is, it's its the history of the future, and it proves that there's a God outside of time, and 100% of what he says will come true. Now, did that actually help you understand uh, or believe that the whole rest of the Bible was a cohesive unit because it's about Israel, right? The whole Testament, um, right? Did that help you understand the Bible a little bit better even? I, oh, I think so. And um, it, it helped me conclude that the Bible was true from cover mm-hmm. to cover. Mm-hmm. That if I could trust all of these things that yeah. about science and, and prophecy, then I could trust what it said about salvation. Yeah. Um, and that we can trust the Bible as God's word specifically, and as it revealing uh, that it reveals the ultimate truth about where we came from and what we're doing here and where we're going. Mm-hmm. So then, when I finally read it, the Bible for myself, cover to cover, I began understanding what the gospel is—that is, the good news—that um, we're saved for all eternity, not by good works, but by God's grace alone through our faith in Jesus. Um, that what matters is not trying to bury our sin in good works or sacraments, but trusting in the Savior to have paid their penalty in full on the cross. Um, and I learned that our responsibility in this equation is to repent and trust in Jesus, period. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also learned that this is the only way to heaven, which was the final answer to the question I had set out to explore in the wake of my mom's death. Mm. It had only taken me like about 15 months to get there, but I was sure of it. It wasn't just believing for the sake of believing. Yeah, well, that's that's important. And I'm amazed that you've actually found the time to study prophecy, too, which is a a fairly large subject that takes a while to master. But once you got saved now, you had this great foundation of apologetics and understanding, knowing that you know that you know what you know, And I really think that's incredible because because what a great firm foundation to stand on. And now, did you have a chance to go back to some of these friends that you had, you know, begun to search out loud with, and and did they react to what you had found and where you where you ended up? Oh, they reacted all right. <laughs> I can't say that even one of them appreciated anything that I had to say. Really? I, I actually lost quite a few friends oh. over it. Um, it would have been okay if I, I just said, well, I've become a Christian and I'm going to some church or something, mm-hmm. but I wanted them to, to believe the same thing I did, yeah. um, and that was very offensive to them. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah. Well, so you noticed a change in yourself um, o- overnight. Did, did that take a process? Because some people say, well, I was a different person the next day, and others say, well... It continued to be a process, you know, of of Lord revealing Himself to me. Was it an overnight uh, conversion? I, it was both things. Okay. Um, 
the one thing that happened overnight was that I couldn't swear anymore. I had been such a potty mouth and it just was gone. Um, and I've heard other people say that that happened to them too. I think even Ray, Adrian Rogers or James Kennedy said that. Mm. Um, but then within a matter of months, the big change was that um, I quit smoking over three packs of cigarettes a day. I know it seems hard to believe anybody could do that, but I was a professional smoker. And <laughs> I also quit drinking alcohol at the same time, mm -hmm. uh, both cold turkey with no withdrawal symptoms at all. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, I had divine help there. I'm not sure why, but maybe um, the Lord was giving legs to my testimony about my salvation, or maybe he wanted me to acknowledge that our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit, uh, and I should start acting like it. I don't know, but there was, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. so, all those years of heavy smoking and just gone. Yeah. Um, I also began studying the Bible daily, which is something I could never have pictured myself doing. Um, and then as time went on, I also found that my, my fears, um, over things like finances and the world's approval and my health and even death, they started diminishing anyway. They, they didn't disappear completely, but they were definitely on the wane, which was pretty amazing. Mm. Um, and perhaps most important, of course, I had complete confidence that heaven awaits, that the best is really yet to come, no matter how bad things may get here. Yeah, yeah, and that you'll see your family again, you'll see your parents again, and and uh, we do yeah. have a blessed hope. We, we oftentimes, you know, we'll watch the news or whatever, and it is an, it is an instant downer. I mean, it really is. And, it, and you have to, you have to really uh, guard your heart and mind so that, so what, whatsoever is true and, you know, praiseworthy that we think on those things. But nevertheless, here we are in this world. We're still here for a reason. Um, and so then you got to, you decided you wanted to write the book. How long did it take before you decided to jump into heaven without her? Well, actually, I had started outlining what I was learning oh. from the beginning so that I would have dinner or lunch with these girlfriends of mine, these atheist girlfriends, and, and I would tell them what I was discovering. And, of course, they shut me down. But it sort of formed a, a good basis for writing the book, mm -hmm. um, for presenting the evidence anyway. Mm -hmm. I, my, my whole goal was to help unbelievers like I had been to... Um, to see that we actually can know the truth about God and heaven and hell. Mm -hmm. But I also wanted to help all those Christians who, who just believe with, uh, without knowing why they believe. Um, I wanted them to see that there's good reason for our faith and equip them to share these reasons with a, a very skeptical world. Um, and you quoted First Peter 3.15 before, we're instructed always to be ready to give a defense for our faith and to give a reason for the hope that is in us. Mm -hmm. So that's what heaven without her is about. It's my prayer that it will, is helping some Christians to do just that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's a great apologetics primer. Um, that word defense is apologia, so we're all called to be apologists, aren't we? I mean, it's it's yep. something that... and. Um, I think I think getting a hold of some good books is is a really good way to do it. You've got quite a bibliography in the back of this book, and you mention a lot of authors, including the gentleman we talked about, Patrick Glynn, uh, James W. Mm -hmm. Sire, and I had not heard of them. I'm going to look them up. You mentioned Dave Hunt and Randall Price. You also mention a gal, A.S.A. Jones. Now, who is that? And she seems to have disappeared. She oh. was just somebody, in doing my research, I came across on the, the Internet and... Um, she talked about stereo something. Uh, anyway, 
Yeah. About getting the right perspective, I'd have to read that again. But, okay. Um, yeah, A.S.A. Jones, I don't know whatever happened to okay. her, but she had been an atheist, too, who converted to okay. Christianity. Okay, because when you mentioned her, I thought, ooh, I'd like to look her up, too. But uh, then you mentioned John Ankerberg, and you know, John, his... Um, Half an hour, were they hour shows? They used to be on at 2 o'clock in the morning. Okay, we had a VCR at the time, and John Ankerberg would be on uh, CBN or something in the, in the wee hours, so we would record them. And I learned a lot about apologetics from John Ankerberg, and he's still out there. He's still mm-hmm. doing ministry. And he'd have Dave Hunt on, and they'd talk about Mormonism and Jehovah Witnesses and talk about sharpening uh-huh. your faith. I owe a lot to John Ankerberg, um, so bless his heart. Um, and then who else? Now, what... What books would you recommend out of this entire bibliography? There, you have a lot of books, and you know the Christian publishing industry. You and I both know that it's there's a lot of compromise there. There's a lot of stuff that isn't worth your yes. time. What is worth our time, Kitty, in this realm? Um, okay, well, as, as you mentioned, James Sire's The Universe Next Door mm-hmm. would, would be probably the first book I would recommend. This is all after the Bible, of course, sure. and I would recommend yep. people get a good study Bible. Um, Life Application Series is really excellent. I think Zondervan's New American Standard mm-hmm. Study Bible is excellent, too. Okay, so then Universe Next Door. And then after that, maybe a book like Josh McDowell's New Evidence That Demands a Verdict. Okay. He answers the most common questions that skeptics raise, which is great when you're a skeptic. Um, one of my favorite books is Henry Morris's Long War Against God. He describes the history of Satan's war on the truth. Just love that book. Mm. Um, and then maybe a final one for a, a must-read is Nancy Piercy's book, Total Truth. It is phenomenal. She mm. shows how Christianity is not just religious truth, but it is truth with a capital T. But I'd say that most of the books in my bibliography are, are excellent. Okay. Um, and there are descriptions there to help the reader decide which direction to take. Yeah, you've got uh, real classics here, too. Every Prophecy of the Bible by Walvoord. Um, uh-huh. The Genesis Flood by John Whitcomb. Um, mm-hmm. uh, boy, hard to believe the high cost and infant value of following Jesus. Uh, wow, there's just so many here. Uh, How to Give Away Your Faith, Paul Little, The Indestructible Book. Um, I think that's a video series, too. It is. Yeah. It is. The video series and the book are by the same guy who's, who died some years ago. Um, Bob oh. Conley, I think his name is. Okay. And Oh, absolutely incredible. It's a story of how God protected or developed the Bible and protected it over the centuries from all its enemies. Yes, and the, the video the videos come highly recommended by friends. Uh, people have seen it. Um, so right. I, I would recommend that, too. You can watch it on YouTube, too. Oh, you can. Okay. For free, yeah. Okay. And the guy has this wonderful, wonderful Lake Country English accent, I think <laughs> it is. It's, he's very comforting to watch. Wow, wow. Uh, also, Henry Morris, you mentioned The Long War Against God, um, and Josh McDowell, um, he's got another one called The New Tolerance. Oh, Occult Invasion, Dave Hunt and T.A. McMahon. Yeah. Uh, boy, I learned a lot from Dave Hunt over the years. Um, and so there yeah. are many here. Highly recommend not only reading the book, but also um, looking at the bibliography. They might, might find some treasures there that are helpful. Now, next week, we actually have a gentleman on a stand-up, Jay Warner Wallace, Cold Case Christianity, a homicide detective investigates the claims of the Gospels. He's going to be on on Tuesday. 
And uh, Ooh, that's it is the books are fantastic. There's a, there's also study guides, um, but I love the way he he looks at the evidence and comes to the conclusions. I highly recommend uh, Jay Warner Wallace, and also like again, he's going to be on on Tuesday. Um, okay. So yes, um, you you've been busy doing some other things um, uh, as far as uh, other books. Um, have you written any actually other full books lately? And then you also have. Um, a nursing home ministry. So tell us about any books that you have or are in the works and then that uh, nursing home ministry. Okay. Um, well, I recently did a full edit on a memoir called A Prisoner's Pardon by C.C. Skye. Um, it demonstrates that the only solution to um, shutting down the revolving door of recidivism in our prisons is the inner transformation that results from faith in Christ. Mm. That's really uh, an excellent book, I think. Um, and I'm, I'm currently working on a biography of a Christian woman and human trafficking warrior whose story needs to be told. Mm. That's all I'll say about it right now, except that I never realized how difficult it would be to write a biography. Um, and then in the meantime, I, in 2017, I think it was, I published a Christian novel called The Song of Sadie Sparrow. Mm-hmm. It's set in an idyllic nursing home, and it's about the relationship between three women an elderly professing Christian, a middle-aged atheist, and a young born-again Christian, and it's about their impacts on each other. Um, it's a story that's dear to my heart because it's based in large part on my experience as a nursing home volunteer since my mother died, so over 23 years now. Um, so I volunteer at the home where she lived and died. And, oh. um, yeah, so it, it's just it's a great ministry it turned out to be actually when i first started going there it was just because i couldn't handle not being there so i just started volunteering right away um but then as i came to christ it became more of a ministry um, because i saw that so many of these dear people had not yet walked through the narrow gate to eternal life Mm -hmm. um, even though many of them were very very religious um so it, it started out with with visits um just sitting down and talking with people. But then those visits evolved into a ministry designed to help them understand and embrace the gospel. Mm -hmm. And then that evolved into some more formal activities. Um, For instance, with the help of some other volunteers, including just a terrific lay preacher, we put on a monthly Christian music hour for the residents and their families. Mm. We did that for 20 years. And then more recently, a couple of us conducted a weekly Bible study um, COVID put an end to all these special activities, as you can imagine. Yeah. The CDC was very hard on nursing homes yeah. and, and still is. We just took off the masks a couple weeks ago, wow. believe it or not. Um, yeah. yeah, but in a couple weeks, Lord willing, we are going to be restarting our weekly Bible study at this nursing home. So, wow. Well, that, I'm really that's excited great. about that. Well, it was grievous, I think, to all of us how hard the nursing homes were hit, and it, it, there was just a lot of sad outcomes there. I think a lot of us are scratching our heads over that. A lot of families never quite got over what happened there. And, mm-hmm. you know, here's such a great ministry opportunity of people who, this is their last stop in life. Right. And they've had they their life. They are on life. the threshold of eternity. Yeah. Yes, they are on the threshold of eternity, and I don't know if nursing home ministries are at the forefront of a lot of people's minds, but... Maybe there's somebody listening who is praying about that sort of thing and who can offer that final bit of hope before these people go into eternity, which is a very serious thing. Now, were you able to, sh- are you able to share openly about your faith with these older residents and how, how is that oh, taken? Yeah. yeah. Yes. 
So far, um, yeah, I, I was reprimanded a couple times mm. by people who complained about me, but um, <laughs> other than that, and, and, and I, I don't know for sure that anybody has been saved. However, one of the women who's been helping me out with this has been an absolute bulldog for the gospel, and I know mm. that there are at least two women that she called on who are now in heaven because of her efforts. Wow. Um, wow. And then... We're, we're kind of running out of time, aren't we? Well, go um, ahead, because we have a, we have a couple minutes yet. And I'm going to get some closing thoughts okay. from you, also. But um, how how would a person go about? I mean, you can just volunteer at nursing homes, right? Even if you don't feel right. led to a full time ministry, right? How can people go about um, getting into that so that they can help these people understand that eternity is long? Right, absolutely. Um, you can get started by just calling the activities director at a nursing home that you would like to visit okay. and offering your services. Um, and then you can make your your ministry whatever you want it to be. Hmm. Um, you can just visit people um, and get to know them, you know, ask for a list of people to call on, and um, some of them are just going to be more open to you. And, you know, I would say probably not the first day you visit, you right. don't want to start pounding the gospel, yeah. but it doesn't take long before you start having very serious conversations with hmm. these people. And Well, and pray yeah. first, because the Lord knows the needs of each individual person in there. They were once young people, and they, you know, maybe they loved rock and roll music, and maybe they, you know, have a story similar to yours or whatever. They, I think learning to look past the aging process and understanding that they were just people, just like... Every one of us has a story, right? And and to, maybe the Lord would would give a person some insight. But the initial need, I think, maybe would be company and just loving on them. Don't you think? Just to, to meet the initial needs first of these people and show them that you love them. Absolutely, absolutely. I, I had some people that I have called on who who had families who never came to see them ever. I was their only friend. So mm. yeah, there it's mm. a great opportunity, and these wow. oh wow, I just have so many wonderful memories from yeah. over the years from having volunteered there. So well, bless your heart, and the song of Sadie Sparrow is a great read. I absolutely loved it. It's full of heart. Any last thoughts, uh, Kitty? You have a minute or so. Any last thoughts on on um, what you would encourage people to do if they have someone in their life that's seeking the Lord? Well, um. Yeah, I, I would say get my book, Get Heaven Without Her, or any of the books in the bibliography. I'm sure you mm-hmm. can see that by doing um, a look inside on Amazon. Mm-hmm. Um, and just get started to uh, find out like, what you can learn so that you can share your thoughts with other people about why the Bible is true. Yeah. Um, and, you know, probably start out... Saying it doesn't matter what we want to believe. What matters is what is true. Right. And the Bible is demonstrably true. Yeah. Um, in the end, all that matters in this life is having a saving relationship with Jesus. We know that, yeah. but there are a lot of people who don't know that. Yeah. But anyone who shrugs it all off as saying that he'll find out when he gets there yes. or that we can't possibly know is yeah. really the ultimate fool. Eternity is a long time to be wrong. Yep, it is. And a hundred years from now, just look around you. What's going to matter? The only thing that's going to matter is who is with you in heaven. We need that heavenly perspective. We need to have eternity on the front burner. Kitty Foth Regner, thank you so much. Your book, book Heaven with Alder, I couldn't put it down. I read it again, and I absolutely loved it. Thank you so much, dear. Hope to get together with you Thanks, sometime Mary. soon. All right. God bless. Wow. So what a, what a great um, testimony she has and all these great resources. I highly recommend them if you're, if you're looking to um, find evidence for the faith and spread it around. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, 
always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Have a great day on purpose.